Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for the tech news for, let's see... Thursday. That's it. September 7th, 2023. Sorry, holiday weeks always mess me up. But let's get to the news. First up, we have an update on the European Union's efforts to push back against big tech companies via the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. The European Commission has designated six tech companies as quote-unquote gatekeepers of the digital market in the EU. Now, to qualify as a gatekeeper, A company has to have more than 45 million end users per month, more than 10,000 business users per year, to be active in at least three member states of the EU, and to have either a market cap of at least 75 million euro or a turnover of 7.5 billion euro. The six companies that have the honor of being called gatekeepers include Alphabet, that's Google's parent company, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, and ByteDance, which is TikTok's parent company, just in case you've forgotten. 
Now, I've talked about this a little bit this year about how Amazon has tried to fight this designation as gatekeeper. Amazon's argued that it doesn't really qualify uh, under those terms, but uh, it appears that those arguments have fallen on deaf ears. The EU has singled out some specific platforms and services in these companies that will have to comply with new rules under the DMA. Those platforms include stuff like Apple's Safari browser or iOS or uh, Google's Android or Chrome browser, Google Search, Google Ads, uh, Meta's Facebook and Instagram and Messenger services. Those are just examples. That's not all of them. In fact, the EU identified 22 services across the big six, uh, including some for the companies I mentioned that I didn't go into. The rules are meant to give EU citizens more control over the services they use. So for example, one rule states that a company like Apple has to make all the pre-installed apps on iOS devices uninstallable and replaceable with third-party applications. So in other words, if you get an iPhone, then you should be able to remove all the pre-installed Apple apps and just replace them with third-party apps if you want to. Now that is to put it lightly, antithetical to Apple's approach. And there are a lot of other rules. That's just one example. And they really do push back hard against some of the key strategies that tech companies have been employing over the last decade. So this is a big deal. The gatekeepers have six months to comply with these rules. If they are found in violation of the rules, the EU can fine the company up to 10% of its total worldwide turnover. Remember, we're talking like seven and a half billion at least here. So 10% of that. Uh, but if a company continues to break the rules, that actually can go up to a 20% fine, which is, you know, twice as much if my math is correct. Also, the commission asserts that it has the authority to force companies to sell off parts of their businesses if they're unable to apply, uh, comply rather with the DMA. So I'll be really interested to see how the gatekeepers respond to this. My guess is, uh, unfavorably. Microsoft has released information about an infiltration attack that ultimately um, had a Chinese-backed hacker group called Storm0558 gaining access to email systems belonging to more than two dozen high-value targets. We're talking about like big companies and also big government agencies. And it sounds like the way this attack happened was a convergence of a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't supposed to happen, and it was like a perfect storm situation for the hackers. So, first up is an expired account consumer signing key. Kind of like a key to get into a system. I mean, that's kind of what this is. Uh, and the key could, but should not have been able to, but it could create tokens that would allow access to stuff like Microsoft's Azure service. Uh, Azure is Microsoft's cloud computing platform. But the beginning of the story actually dates all the way back to April 2021. So see, the system that this key was on was meant to be a very heavily protected system. The only person allowed to access this workstation was a specific engineer who had been thoroughly vetted by Microsoft because they were working in a production development environment that other people were absolutely not supposed to be able to access. So that also meant the workstation was not allowed to have several basic applications and services on it because those are frequently attack vectors for hackers. So there was no email on this thing, no web access on it. 
uh, collaboration tools couldn't be on it, that kind of thing. Essentially, the workstation was approaching air gap status, although it still had network connectivity, so it wasn't truly air gapped. If it had been, then we'd have a different conversation going on here. It also had multi-factor authentication protection, and all of this makes you wonder, well, then how the heck did the hackers get access to this? If it was such a heavily protected workstation, how did they manage to get this key that had already expired? And how then did they use that to get access to all these different organizations' email systems? Well, again, back in 2021, in April, this particular workstation crashed. And so Windows performed a crash dump process. So this is when the computer takes the data that's in the computer's memory and then saves that data to long-term storage. And the reason for that is that someone can later look at the data and kind of see what actually happened, what caused the crash. Is there something that needs to be addressed to prevent it from happening in the future? Well, it turns out that this expired account consumer signing key was in the computer's memory at the time of the crash. So it was part of this crash dump. Now, it was supposed to not make it through the next step because Microsoft scans data to look for things that could potentially be a security vulnerability and to remove them before transporting the data to, you know, the, the, the bug development group. And that step failed. It did not detect the fact that there was this key that was just sitting there. It's like a shiny key hidden in a big pile of dirty old data. And so they didn't think that there was anything problematic there. So they moved it on over to the debugging environment. And sometime this year, hackers were able to compromise a, a different Microsoft engineer's corporate account. And that gave them access to this debugging environment, which normally wouldn't have anything in it that would be particularly dangerous. But they were able to find that key, that gleaming, shining, signing key in that crash dump data. And then how could they then use an expired key, an expired consumer key, at that, it wasn't even an enterprise key, how could they use that to forge tokens that would allow them to access enterprise accounts on Azure? Well, Microsoft revealed that in 2018, the company created a new framework that messed things up. This new framework couldn't actually validate signing keys properly. It couldn't really tell the difference between a consumer key and an enterprise key. And unless system administrators had taken some pretty extraordinary steps, assuming that Microsoft had not addressed this and automated the validation process, which is a weird assumption to make. Like you would assume that all of this would be taken care of on Microsoft's side. So there was no reason to take these extraordinary steps. Well, unless you had taken those steps, it meant that your system was potentially vulnerable to this attack. And that's, in fact, what happened. Uh, that was the perfect storm. And a lot of it ends up being the sole responsibility of Microsoft itself. It actually gets way more technical than the overview I just gave. I gave a very, very oversimplified version of what happened. But if you would like to read up on the details, I recommend checking out an article in Ars Technica. It's titled... Microsoft finally explains cause of Azure breach and engineer's account was hacked. It goes into more detail and explains on a technical level what was happening. So if you want to check that out, uh, I recommend it. Okay, 
We have now come up to the section of tech news I like to call ay 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 because it's all about AI. And so leading the charge is Geo Media. That's the parent company of Gizmodo. So according to The Verge, on August 29th, Geo Media fired the entire staff of Gizmodo en Español, which, as I'm sure you've gathered, is the Spanish language version of Gizmodo. So the company replaced the staff with AI translators. So they would translate the English language articles into Spanish. Now, articles on the Spanish language site include a bit at the end of the article, at the bottom of the page, that says something like, contents have been automatically translated from the original. Due to the nuances of machine translation, there can be slight differences. Well, readers have reported some slight differences, and some major ones too. They say that this tool is far from perfect. They say there are examples of articles that start in Spanish, but then at some way through the article, they change to English and stay that way. As many have pointed out in recent months, the shift toward using AI for content creation or even auto-translation isn't necessarily as cost-saving or labor-saving as you might first imagine, because you have issues with factual errors, you know, technical hiccups, uh, the AI hallucinating and inventing information that is incorrect. And that means that humans still have to pore over AI's work to make sure that the work is right. And at some point, you have to ask yourself the question, isn't it just easier and smarter to just use humans rather than to have to deal with all the instances of robot goof-em-ups? But then what do I know? I'm just a dumb human. Earlier this year, a music creator with the handle Ghost Writer made headlines when they released a song they had written called Heart on My Sleeve. This was the song that was voiced by an AI version of real human artists Drake and The Weeknd. And that prompted a big old brouhaha in the music industry. Music companies argued that it was a copyright violation. Uh, that doesn't track for me at all. Because Ghostwriter apparently wrote the actual song. So Ghostwriter has the copyright for the song, at least the lyrics, uh, and presumably the music. And you can't copyright a person's voice. So I don't know where you could actually argue, you know, in a valid way that this is a copyright violation. But the issue raised a lot of questions and it pointed out that there are some big old gaps that we have in IP law as far as AI-generated content goes. And now The Verge reports that, one, Ghostwriter has released a new song called Whiplash that features AI impressions of Travis Scott and 21 Savage. And two, Ghostwriter has posted a message stating that they're going to release a record of music with impersonated voices if the artists who were impersonated sign off on it. So it's not that Ghostwriter is saying, this is going out, you know, I'm going to sell this whether you like it or not. Ghostwriter is saying, if you consent, then we'll start selling this and I'll direct royalties to you. So you're going to make money and you never had to do anything. Now, according to Harvey Mason Jr., head of the Recording Academy, the other thing Ghostwriter wants to do is a distinct possibility, which is Ghostwriter wants to submit Hard on My Sleeve for Grammy consideration. The Recording Academy is the organization that essentially runs the Grammys. And so the head of the Academy says, well, from a creative standpoint, he totally or they totally can submit this song for consideration because it was written by a human. Might not have been performed by one, but it was written by one. That's all that matters. However, 
there are other metrics that the song has to meet in order to qualify for consideration. These are metrics that involve things like distribution. And because so many platforms pulled the song after being pressured by the music labels, chances are this song does not meet those qualifications. So I don't think it's going to be considered for a Grammy, not because of the creative side, but because of the business side. But according to the the head of Recording Academy, it totally could be Grammy eligible. Interesting. Okay, we've got a lot more stories to cover before we wrap up today. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NBC News reports that platforms like Instagram and TikTok are being inundated with sexualized AI-generated content. Essentially, we're talking about chatbots and AI-generated images here. 
the news agency found 35 app developers running more than 1,000 ads for these kinds of services on Meta's various platforms. And that's notable for a few reasons. A big one is that Meta has really cracked down hard on sexualized content from human beings. So people like sex workers have been pushed off the platform. Companies that make uh, sexual aids and sexual toys have been denied the ability to run ads on the platform. And yet here we have this influx of AI powered services, adult oriented services that aren't just appearing on the platform. They're running in ads like this is this is a paid service They're They're working with Meta. And yet, and despite the fact that Meta has cracked down on this in these other situations, they don't seem to have done it here. The same thing or a very similar thing is happening over at TikTok. NBC only found 14 app developers running ads over there, however. And there's a lot going on here, obviously. There's this double standard that disenfranchises, you know, human beings who are working in this space, uh, but doesn't do that to AI. And then there's the concern about security and privacy. This is my big concern, because we already know that AI can be real loosey-goosey with your private information, right? Like, if the AI model is taking the stuff you communicate to the model in account, then you are feeding that AI model, which then can regurgitate the stuff you fed to it to other people. So maybe you don't want to express your most intimate desires and preferences to an AI chatbot. It just might not turn out so well for you in the long run. Anyway, NBC News rightfully raises the question as to why these AI-powered ads seem to be getting a pass when it would be against the rules for a human to post something similar. I don't know. Maybe the robots already got to them. Starting in November, Google will require political ads that rely on AI for content generation to prominently disclose the involvement of the AI. Specifically, Google will require ads that contain, quote, synthetic content, end quote, that appears to show realistic people or events to, you know, label it as such. So let's say, for example, that you had a political ad and it shows a certain politician appearing at a certain event. And that event is absolutely overflowing with a huge, enthusiastic, supportive audience. But perhaps in reality, they did appear at an event, but maybe it was poorly attended. So AI has been used to generate this crowd. Well, the ad would need to disclose that it had used AI to augment these images. Uh, I don't think it would have to get as granular as to say what actually was done to the images, but it would have to alert you that AI was used as part of that ad generation. Now, there is a threshold here. If someone were just using AI to do some minor tweaks, like removing red eye or something like that, they don't have to disclose that. That doesn't meet the, the criteria. But if you're doing something like making someone appear someone that somewhere where they, they weren't or with someone who was not there, anything like that, that would have to be disclosed. All right. We are now done with AI for this episode, but I'm not done with Google. YouTube is removing some control options for content creators when it comes to ads. So right now, a content creator has a, a decent amount of freedom of where they will allow ads to run against monetized content. So for example, a lot of ASMR artists will allow pre-roll ads. Now, these are the ads that play before a video plays. 
but they turn off mid-roll ads, which of course play in the middle of a video. Like the video stops, you get an ad, and then the video keeps going, kind of like the ads in this podcast. Also, they'll turn off post-roll ads. Those are the ads that play after a video has finished playing. And the reason why ASMR artists turn off mid-roll and post-roll ads as a rule is because they can be really jarring to listen to if you are using ASMR to try and relax or to lull yourself to sleep. Because chances are, having some obnoxious ad playing right after the video ends will kind of spoil the effect. Anyway, YouTube's changes mean that creators can select whether or not ads can play on either side of a video, but they don't get to choose whether those ads will be pre-roll or post-roll or both. They can say, yes, I will allow ads to play before or after, but they don't get to say which one. Just it's before or after collectively. And YouTube gets to decide whether the ads will play before the video or after the video or both. They also are not going to be able to choose whether or not the ads are skippable or non-skippable. There are also going to be some other changes to things like mid-roll ads as well, but they're not quite to the extreme that I just mentioned. And for a lot of content creators, this may not be that disruptive, but for folks in the meditation or ASMR or relaxation spaces, it's causing a lot of anxiety. Heads up to Chrome users. Google has been rolling out an enhanced ad privacy feature. Some might say this feature is perhaps a bit misleading because the name would have you think, ah, this feature will help keep my data private from advertisers. Now, it kind of does that, but it kind of doesn't. So this ties into an application programming interface that's called Topics, the Topics API. And what's going on here is that Chrome uses your browser history to serve you targeted ads. So based upon the kinds of sites you visit and how often you visit them and how long you stay there, Chrome will be able to serve ads to you that it judges are more relevant to your interests. So Topics is supposed to help replace third-party cookies, something that Chrome will stop supporting in the not-too-distant future. Cookies can act as trackers for your behavior across the web. So the benefit of Topics, according to Google, is that it doesn't hand your browser history over to advertisers. It doesn't explicitly say, oh, you went to site X, site Y, and site Z. Instead, what Google does is hold on to that information and it just indicates the types of stuff you're interested in. So for me, it might tell an advertiser something about me without going into details. So for example, it would not say, oh yeah, Jonathan, he's on the iFixit page like five times a week. It wouldn't say that. Instead, it might say, Jonathan is interested in technology, gadgets, DIY repair, etc. And you can argue that's an improvement, right? Like it's not as explicit as listing out all the different specific sites you went to. But the way Google has rolled this out has left some people upset because users are seeing a pop-up that alerts them to the enhanced privacy from ads. But what this really means is that it's already opting you into this browser history rec recording feature that Google, that you're enabling this, you're enabling Google to use your browser history as a way to target ads to you. Like that's, that's what happens if you just hit got it. It just, it, it opts you in and people are saying, oh, it makes it sound like by the name of the feature that if you hit got it, it opts you out. The opposite is true. It opts you in. And in order to opt out, you then have to go 
to your browser settings, go to the privacy settings. There's a, a, a selection called add privacy. If you do that, then you can go in and turn off this feature, but you have to do it manually at that point because you've already said, got it. Well, they got me because I said, got it. <laughs> I, I, I probably didn't read it properly, but even if I had, like, there's a chance I would have just thought, oh, by clicking got it, it means I've opted to be out of this program when in fact the opposite was true. Uh, and when I went into the settings, that's what I saw. The settings were all turned on and I needed to turn them off manually. So just wanted to let you folks know that so that if you use Chrome, you can go into those privacy settings, check that add privacy, see if it's on. And you know, if you have no problem with that, that's fine. Just leave it on. But if like me, you thought you were opting out and it turns out you were opting in, you might want to make some changes. Okay, I've got some more news stories to come, but before we jump into all of that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, quick story here. The FAA is extending how far UPS is allowed to fly delivery drones. So this week, the FAA updated its rules and will allow deliveries that go beyond light of line of sight. So previously, an operator or a spotter needed to be able to maintain eyes, maintain sight on a delivery drone as it was dropping off a package, which of course you could argue eliminates the benefits of having a delivery drone in the first place. So now, for the first time, companies will not have to employ spotters to keep an eye on a drone as it makes its way to the drop-off. So the days of robots delivering our small packages are closer than ever. Next up, have you ever had the problem of running out of disk space? Maybe it was on a video game console and it told you that no, you cannot download Starfield because your console's disk drive is already full, so you're going to have to uninstall some stuff to make room. Or maybe you've encountered it on a work or home PC. Well, if you have, just be comforted in knowing that you are not alone, because last week, a disk capacity issue shut down Toyota. Like, all of Toyota's assembly plants in Japan had to shut down. And some of the company's servers just detected that there was insufficient disk space to continue operations, and so operations stopped continuing. This raised concerns that perhaps the auto company had been the target of hackers, but in fact it turned out to be a pretty simple problem with a pretty simple solution. Toyota transferred the data to a server that had much more storage capacity, and then things got back on track. But it really does show that the little frustrations that can irritate us as end users can cause much larger problems in other contexts. The Mozilla Foundation recently conducted a study on the privacy practices of certain segment of technology, and they, they found that this particular sector of technology underperforms across the board when it comes to privacy. And that segment is, drumroll please, the automobile industry. So according to the Mozilla Foundation, 92% of auto manufacturers give drivers very little or no control over how their private information is gathered and used. More than 80% of them will share driver data with outside partners. Uh, out of the 25 car companies that the foundation studied, not a single one of them even met the minimum privacy standards that they had established. They being the foundation, I should say. Plus, the foundation said these companies aren't just collecting and sharing data, they're collecting more information than they need in order to provide services to drivers. So this reminds me of how platforms like Facebook used to let developers get access to all sorts of data, even if their app didn't need that data to operate. That's part of what led to the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, in fact. And it turns out a very similar thing is playing out in our vehicles, to an extent, anyway. Some other stuff that the study discovered includes the fun fact that more than half of auto manufacturers are willing to share driver information to law enforcement upon request. If you contrast that with internet-based platforms, they are known to exert a pretty decent deal of effort to try and keep user data secure because otherwise you lose the trust of your user base. But the car companies don't seem to have that same perspective. 76% of those auto companies claimed that they actually have the right to sell driver information to data brokers. Like, they just have that right inherently. Doesn't require you to consent to it. If you're wondering which company scored the lowest on the test results, uh, that would be Tesla. 
And I know I have a tendency to criticize Tesla a lot on the show, but it's stuff like this, I would argue, that kind of justifies that approach. As for what you as a driver can do about this, the answer is not a whole lot. Mozilla Foundation has called out to car companies to make substantive changes to how they collect and utilize data because this problem is too big for individual drivers to tackle in any meaningful way. Hey, do you remember Clubhouse? That's the app that debuted in uh, 2021, made a real big splash. Uh, It let people create virtual spaces where they could broadcast audio to an audience. So it was kind of like you could have a live streaming podcaster or you could be a, a even a DJ if you wanted to be. You could have shows with guests and allow folks to listen in. And initially, Clubhouse had this air of exclusivity. Uh, originally, the app was invitation only, and it was also limited to the iOS platform at first. And there's nothing like an exclusive club to make people want to become a member. But the shine wore off of Clubhouse And while the app did have sort of a meteoric rise, it faded from conversations not too long after that. Now the company has laid off about half its staff, and it's looking to reframe Clubhouse as more of a messaging app than a live audio app. So rather than being a bunch of virtual town halls that could be hosted by anybody, you know, from a a no one like me to an actual celebrity... The focus now is for Clubhouse users to form groups with people they actually know, like real-life friends and family. Uh, In fact, it sounds a lot like what Twitter was intended to be when it was first launched. It wasn't thought of as, like, broadcasting to everyone. The use case was more like you would follow people you actually know so that you could keep up with what they were doing. Now, users will be leaving audio messages for each other, Uh, I'm not really sure how this is at all different from other messaging apps that also incorporate audio elements. And I'm not sure if Clubhouse can actually leverage this approach to regain relevancy in the market. But then I never actually joined Clubhouse because I'm not one of the cool kids. So I'm out of the loop here. I don't know what I'm talking about, I guess. Now, I was going to talk about a secret rocket launch at Cape Canaveral this week. One that isn't part of SpaceX, it's not part of NASA, it's not part of any other like space agency, but it turns out this secret launch was scrubbed and didn't happen. Uh, technically, it was a secret for at least a while, but folks figured out pretty quickly that it was a U.S. military operation and that it was most likely meant to conduct a test launch of hypersonic missiles. So as that term suggests... These are missiles that travel faster than the speed of sound. And with this incredible speed and their maneuverability, they would be more capable of avoiding anti-missile weaponry. But today, the or rather yesterday, I should say, the military scrubbed those plans. Uh, they also acknowledged that this was meant to test hypersonic missile technology. But the reason for scrubbing was very vague. It just said that during pre-flight checks, they had to make the call to, to scrub the launch. Uh, this would have been the first surface test of a U.S. hypersonic missile, but other countries like China, which actually leads the world in this technology, and Russia have already deployed, and in Russia's case, even used hypersonic-capable weaponry. We haven't heard the last of this, I don't think. Or, I mean, maybe we won't hear it. We'll see it. I mean, we'll hear it, because hypersonic, you'll get a sonic boom afterward, and then an actual boom if it's a missile. I'm getting off track. Now, if you were going to remake Alanis Morissette's song, Ironic, today, you might include this last news item there. 
So Rockstar Games, the company behind popular franchises like Grand Theft Auto, has included some of the same technology the company has previously campaigned against in some of its games that's now selling on Steam. So this all has to do with digital rights management, or DRM. So the purpose of DRM is to prevent or discourage piracy, though advocates often argue that pirates will find ways around DRM, so then the only people who have to deal with DRM are actual valid customers, which means you're just making the experience worse for people who were already paying for the experience, and the people who didn't want to pay for the experience, they just found ways to get around the protections you had put in place. And anyway, a hacker group called Razor 1911, years and years and years ago, created a bunch of cracks for Rockstar Games, for certain titles in Rockstar Games. So these were pieces of software that are meant to get around DRM, really just files that allow you to bypass DRM. And the interesting thing is that now Rockstar has put some of those old titles for sale on Steam, but Rockstar needed a way to get around this DRM that they themselves had put on these old games. And to do that, what the company apparently has done is to include some of the very same cracks made by those hackers. A, a hacker group that Rockstar Games was very gung-ho on going up against back in the day. And now they're using the hackers' own tools because these old games have DRM on them that otherwise would make the, the playing experience suboptimal. Bleeping Computer uncovered this and has screenshots of code that indicate that, yeah, some of those cracks do appear in certain Rockstar game files, which is pretty wild stuff. Okay, I've got a couple of recommendations of articles for y'all this week. First up is an article in Wired. It's titled, The Burning Man Fiasco is the Ultimate Tech Culture Clash. So obviously this goes into detail about how thousands of people found themselves stranded in the desert at the Burning Man Festival while torrential rains move through the area. But it's also about how a cultural subset essentially appropriated and, you know, took over. They hijacked an art festival and how that in turn has changed the festival itself. So well worth a read. The second recommendation I have is titled Airbnb bookings dry up in New York as the new short stay rules are introduced. Um, I think this is a really interesting read. It's in The Guardian, and it's uh, only partly tech-related, I would argue. A lot of people put Airbnb in tech company status, uh, so it kind of fits in that regard. But it's also really about how the tech startup culture that's centered around disruption can be can have some really negative consequences. So in this case, the disruption was meant to be to the hospitality industry right? That's what Airbnb is taking aim for. They're taking aim at, at like hotels and cabin rentals and things like that in an effort to, you know, uh, democratize it to some extent and also just to make a, a, a ton of cash in the process. But New York, the response to New York was that we need to make up rules to curtail this because people who are owning properties, rather than selling them, they are renting them out for these short stays and meanwhile, we have a housing crisis in the city. There's not enough housing for the people who need it. And part of the reason is because there are all these landlords who are renting out these spaces in short term. So we're going to make it really, really hard for them to do that. The rules are making it very challenging to 
run an Airbnb kind of business in New York City in order to address this issue. So I just thought it was interesting to see the interplay between disruption and legislative response. So I recommend that one as well. Okay, that's it for the tech news for Thursday, September 7th, 2023. I hope you're all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.